0: From NPR News in New York, this is the Bryant Park Project.
1: Overlooking historic Bryant Park in Midtown Manhattan, live from the NPR studios, this is the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. News information and one question, who made the potato salad? We'll find out why that phrase is in the top 10 on Google Trends when we hit the most. I'm Allison Stewart. It is Thursday, July 24th, 2008, the penultimate broadcast of the Bryant Park Project. You know, I went back in the Wayback Machine uh, to find out what we were doing a year ago, and I went on the blog, and a year ago today, we were just having our little morning meetings, and the YouTube debates were up, and... We talked about a teenager who got on the plane, a plane with meningitis, and we were cooking up our fifth pilot. Our fifth pilot show was on July 25th, 2007. Oh, how far we've come. We were a grown-up show for a while. Hey, but we do have a grown-up show for you today. A whole bunch of stuff on tap. First up, The Grand New Party is the name of a book by a couple of 20-something Republicans who say they have an idea or two about how and what their party of choice should be doing to woo new members. We'll talk to one of the authors. And I have a, a little news about another NPR assignment for yours truly. I just have to figure out how to get there in one piece details on that on the way. And of course, this is our second to last show. And along the way, this week, a discussion has cropped up about, you know, what radio will look like in five years, 10 years. How are we going to get our news in the future? We'll mull this over with someone who has an idea or two, and we'll continue our week-long series, The Five Stages of Grief, mashed up with our BPP feature, Best Song in the World Today. All right, we've gone through denial, anger, bargaining, and now today depression. But before we go all Debbie Downer, here's the BPP's Mark Garrison with some news headlines.
2: This is NPR. Thank you, Allison. We've got two reports from the campaign trail. Democratic candidate Barack Obama gives a major speech in Berlin today. He chose a spot near the famed Brandenburg Gate, so he's getting questions about history. NPR's Don Gagne is traveling with the campaign.
3: Senator Obama was asked to compare this speech to famous speeches given in Berlin by Ronald Reagan. That was the Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall speech. And, of course, John F. Kennedy's speech, uh, 89 Berliner. He said, uh, be clear, they were presidents of the United States when they delivered those speeches. He is a candidate. He says it is a good speech. He says he feels good about it. He says it will talk about the importance of the transatlantic
2: relationship between the the U.S. and Germany and Europe, uh, Europe more generally. NPR's Don Gagne on the road with Obama and on an awesome line. Obama's Republican rival John McCain campaigns in Ohio. That's an interesting change in plans from a New Orleans campaign swing. NPR's Scott Horsley explains.
4: John McCain was scheduled to be in New Orleans for a meeting with Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal. The 37-year-old Indian American is often mentioned as a possible running mate, but the McCain campaign scrubbed the New Orleans trip and said the Jindal meeting will be rescheduled. The official explanation was bad weather from Hurricane Dolly, which might have interfered with a planned helicopter trip to an offshore oil platform. The forecast in New Orleans is for partly cloudy skies with isolated thunderstorms, The air also holds a whiff of fuel oil after a barge collision that dumped more than 400,000 gallons of oil into the Mississippi River. The spilled oil wasn't from an offshore platform, but it might not have been a great visual backdrop for a candidate who's trying to promote more
2: offshore drilling. NPR's Scott Horsley reporting. Quick update on the oil spill Scott mentioned. A tanker ship slammed into a fuel barge. Hundreds of thousands of gallons of oil poured into the Mississippi. The river is closed for miles from New Orleans down south. Could be days before it opens. You hear about oil and you think about high gas prices. They hurt sales of large trucks, so people who need a pickup might buy a smaller one instead. Now, new crash testing raising worries about small truck safety. This from the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, who does the crash test you always see on TV. They gave a couple small pickups their worst crash rating of poor. Several others earned a marginal rating. That is the second lowest score. Only one small pickup, the Toyota Tacoma, got a top rating. Finally, a follow-up on a story we brought you a long time ago in the most. The headline included the following words and in close proximity, Nazi orgy scandal. Won't go into too much detail, but basically the British tabloid News of the World reported that Max Mosley, he is the president of Formula One Racing, joined a large group bondage party with Nazi themes. The report was based on video of the session. Mosley fessed up to the SM part but denied any Nazi themes. Then he sued the paper. Today, he won. A British court said the reporting violated his privacy and awarded him about $120,000. Later this hour, we'll have the most for today. But that's all we have for the moment. More news online at NPR.org. This is NPR.
1: That was um, an awesome phone line. To tin cans and a rope, maybe. We try.
2: Nothing can stop us from reporting the news.
1: <laughs> and news from the news of the world.
2: Yes. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah, that fine, fine, fine paper. Thanks, Mark. All right. So a funny thing happened in the middle of our cancellation. The journalists in us kicked in, and we said, "Wait, you know, there there is a bigger story here." It's about the future of radio and news consumption. I mean, will terrestrial news shows continue to be a viable and dominant form, or is it in danger because of online offerings? But here's the thing. How do you make money with online offerings? Enough to pay for news gathering, travel to far-flung places, and experience people to do that reporting? Well, there aren't any clear answers yet. But there are some interesting ideas. So we turn to James Ledbetter, the editor of The Big Money, a new financial website from Slate. It's going to be launched in September. He's also the author of Made Possible By, The Death of Public Broadcasting in the United States, and written about the state of media for just about every magazine out there. And he's a podcaster as well. Hi, you're very busy. You're a very busy man.
0: You're busy, that's true. Good
1: morning. <laughs> Good morning to you. So today, on July 24th, I'll, I'll paint a picture of somebody's life. You're waking up, make some coffee, you might get the laptop, or get up to your desktop at work, you check your emails, Facebook, maybe a Twitter feed, hit some newspaper websites, maybe use an RSS reader, like blog lines. So, James, take our hand, hold our hand, and take us into the future. Let's say you wake up, you make some coffee, and then what? How do you get your information?
0: Well I think that the um the, the fundamental changes in the you know in the, in the let's say the medium term uh horizon five to ten years are really more in the mode of delivery rather than they are in 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 in, the, in, in a sort of change you know mode of content or um production um and what do I mean by that I mean that that the the, the sort of classic news radio formula, news traffic weather, the things that people really want in the morning, I don't think that's going to fundamentally change. Um, how you get that information is is, is going to evolve. I think the, the biggest difference that we'll see in the next five years will be a much larger role for handheld devices like mobile phones, iPhones, uh, iPods to some extent. Um, although I think that that the the iPod and the podcast will probably be leapfrogged over by by what's available through through an Internet-connected iPhone. Um, And then other other forms of delivery. For example, it makes a lot of sense for traffic information if I commute by car, which I personally don't, but lots of people do, Mm -hmm. um, to have traffic information emailed directly to my car or, or, or plugged into the the GPS system that's in my car so that when a map comes up, it'll already show me which highways are clogged, et cetera, et cetera. So the the delivery methods will evolve. Where the information comes from and what information people want and need, probably going to stay pretty much the same.
1: Well, I want to go back five years to 2003. Sometimes you can learn a lot or predict the future by looking at the past. What do you think has has changed the most? What does it signal to us when you think about the future from past experiences? I I thought right away about imagine a time before Dan Rather lost his job because some eagle eye blogger noticed some documents used in the report about the president weren't authentic.
0: Right. Um, but I, I, you know, obviously the development, the development of blogs has been important. I would not myself rank it as the most important development in the last five years. I, I think that the, the, you know, the, the single killer application that the internet has brought us remains email. Hmm. Um then and, and so while of course email existed five years ago, I think its ubiquity and its 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 acceptance as a mode of delivering news um is, is really the, the the biggest change that people people now get um, emailed summaries of of what's in the, what's in the papers. They get uh, they get summaries of, of stuff that's of particular interest to them. Maybe their their industry, or if it's entertainment news, or or um, news about food. Any really anything you can imagine can now be delivered through email, and then will either link out to a website or, or contain the information in in the email itself. Um, Certainly, the development of the web and, and the development of, of the blogosphere uh, are important. You, you mentioned, um, you know, uh, RSS feeds and, and, and news readers. You know, I, I think those are great tools. Every survey I've seen shows that actually a very small percentage of web users actually use them. Um, and sometimes it's because they're hard to set up. Sometimes it's because the feeds don't work that well. There's all sorts of places where where those things break down. And I suppose that technology will get better, but at the moment it doesn't look to me like something that's going to provide a a massive change.
1: Well, I wonder two things about that. One, when you say email, my mind immediately went to the speed with which we can get News, which kind of is bad news for newspapers and even evening newscasts.
0: I I, I don't I don't think that it is. I I I, again. I get information um, so much more
1: quickly online than I can by waiting for the next edition of the newspaper to come out. That's
0: right. That's right. But 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 at the end of the day, who's who's providing that information? So I get, for example, because I'm covering business these days, um, I I get email news alerts from WallStreetJournal.com. I now I now get them on my BlackBerry, which is also my phone. So you know the, the sort of sort of headline service that I might have once relied on News Radio or CNBC for. I can now get the gist of a story um, and even the whole story on on my BlackBerry. But it's still coming from a Wall Street Journal reporter or a wire service. Well, then that gets and- the
1: next question: When, when, and can? independent reporting be sustained online? Where does the money come from that so that right. someone who has a podcast can dispatch someone to the fire to report on what has happened right. rather than and rely I, on the APIers.
0: That, that there's, there's no question that, that that is the sort of, you know, looming dilemma that, that lies over all of our heads. And certainly, it's, it's, it's not possible to imagine right now um, a model for supporting n- news and supporting reporting that is is based on the the kind of advertising that we 're familiar with that has supported print publications in the past that 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 no one has figured out um, at the same time, I, I would argue that that was never. Really, the only way of, of funding things. I mean, national public radio is a mm-hmm. perfect example. Um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't rely on 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 advertising in the same sense uh, to 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 to, uh, to do what it does. It has corporate underwriting and it has some underwriting spots that look a lot like advertising, sound a lot like advertising, but it's not it's not advertising in the traditional print model. And I think that that is the way it's going to have to go, even for commercial outlets. They're they're going somebody somebody needs to find a way. To make that email that comes to my BlackBerry uh, work, and maybe that involves embedding an advertisement in that, or maybe it involves a sponsorship model that the the BlackBerry delivery service is brought to you by Research In Motion, the company that makes Blackberries. Um, there are there are uh, models out there where where individual bloggers have asked readers to contribute so that they can go to Iraq, some some with success. That 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 right now is not a model that you're going to base an entire industry on, but I think that there's a lot of sort of ferment going on right now in in new media to solve exactly that question. But that is the question.
1: We're speaking with James Ledbetter, writer and reporter, about the, the future of how we're going to consume news and where it's going to grow. And I'm curious about for news to succeed on the internet, I mean, does there have to be a portal, a show, a home base, a podcast, an anchor? And I don't mean a person; I mean some place to go, to to assemble and then link out.
0: I kind of think that there does. Uh, that that, that uh, the what what you get if you don't have a portal, an aggregator, a, a, a filter of some kind, is you immediately get. Cacophony. Uh, you know, I, I have found that, that even some of the aggregating tools, because they want so badly to be comprehensive, you, you, I almost need a filter for the filters. Uh, and I won't, I won't name names, but but it, it is, it is, it is very easy to be overwhelmed by information on the internet, and particularly when you have um, very different standards of quality, length of story, consistency of reporting. If you if you if you come to a Particular website or, or or portal or or just 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 an online presence, and have an expectation of a certain level of consistency. It's very easy to get angry when you read something you consider as slipshod or, or insufficiently reported or inaccurate, and so I, I think that there there the, the, and, and certainly if you look at the most trafficked websites, you know in the United States and in the world, many of them are these these portals, places that help us figure out uh, you know, and prioritize, which is the traditional function of journalists. It, 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 it takes a different form, but it remains a sort of gatekeeping filter function. And I think that most news consumers need that. There, there, there's a small select few people who will go out and find their own and use the latest technology to, to sort of work their way through the, the thicket of information. But most people need a filter or an aggregator of some kind.
1: James Ledbetter is the editor of The Big Money, a new financial website from Slate being launched in September. Good luck with the new site, James. Thank you very much, and And good luck to you. Thank you very much. Coming up, they are young Americans, specifically young Republicans, and they have a few things they'd like their elders to know about the GOP. And if you've had it with snakes on a plane, what about babies? If you're going to Chicago next week, look out. Baby Ike is going to hit the skies. Details coming up on the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. Back to the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. Online, all the time at npr.org slash Park. We're going to get ready to ramble with special guest rambler, BBB editor, Tricia McKinney. But Trisha, you know what we have to do? What? We have to say hi to Carl. Hi, Carl. 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 Upstate Carl. Oh, my friend Carl. And my friend, sort of Carl. I Carl. thought you meant Carl Castle. I was confused about which Carl. No, young Carl. Young Carl. Nothing yet Carl Castle's in your heart. Carl is a faithful... Listener to the Bryant Park Project. He listens so. every day. Just wanted to say, hey, so hey, let's hey ramble. Carl. <laughs>
5: All right, I will start the ramble. Uh, there is a couple from Melbourne, Australia that is alive today thanks to a a, an, a pet. Mm-hmm. Usually this story involves a dog. Yeah. This one is a rabbit. A pet rabbit. And bunny? Guess, what, guess what the rabbit's name is? Hercules. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> His name is Rabbit. Oh, all right, how would an Australian say rabbit? Rabbit. 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 His name is Ribbit. <laughs> anyway, Rabbit uh, woke up from sleep, scratched at the couple's bedroom door, and alerted them to that something was wrong. They uh, they searched the house, and they found a fire starting in a back room. They they all hopped to safety. And, how did the uh, rabbit alert
1: them? they shake his the ears? At their th-
5: <laughs> <laughs> no, it scratched at their door. Oh, okay. I've never had a pet rabbit, so I don't know what sounds they make. I know they make sounds when dogs chase them, but that's all I know. Okay, so anyway, they're they're all fine, and, you know, happy rabbit. Good job, rabbit.
1: There is a lawsuit brewing between 50 Cent, 50 Cent, excuse me, and Taco Bell. Just want to make sure I'm correct there. 50 Cent has sued Taco Bell, claiming that the restaurant is using his name without permission. Um, it's this interesting – they use his picture in an advertisement that they want to advertise all of their food that's under a dollar. So they're It's saying, a print ad, right? Yeah, it's a print yeah. ad. And it's his face. And it says, hey, won't you change your name to 79 cent, 89 cent, or 99 cent? Hey, that's comedy gold. That is. It's, uh, it wasn't very funny to him since he didn't know they were using his name and yeah, his face. That's and, bad. nah, that's not so good. Uh, he is, I think, suing them for something like $4 million he's done this before he sued over his name and image in 07 he filed a million dollar lawsuit when an internet ad company uses image without permission in a game called Shoot the Rapper. Yeah, that would make me mad, too.
5: Wait, though, can you read the quote from the Taco Bell of guy? Of
1: course. We made a good-faith charitable offer to 50 Cent to change his name to either 79 Cent, 89, or 99 Cent for one day by wrapping his order at a Taco Bell, and we would have been very pleased to make a $10,000 donation to the charity of his so choice. So they wanted him to wrap his order. Yes. I mean, this whole thing. Come I'm on. on. I'm on 50 side. I am, too. Completely I'm not I'm supposed to editorialize,
5: but go Fitty. Go, well,
1: and I'm on donating to charity side as well, but come on.
5: Yeah. Come All on. right. So uh, speaking of food, not fast food like Taco Bell. This is slow food. Um, there's going to be a big party in San Francisco on Labor Day weekend. It's a slow food gathering. Mm. So you will be able to eat your food quickly. That's not the point of slow food. <laughs> you just, you know, it, it, the slow food movement. So uh, conference organizers, they're calling this the Woodstock Celebration of Food. Do not Try the brown rice. Do not try the brown rice. Uh, so uh, they, they want to have a festival of delicious, sustainably produced
1: edibles aiming to bring about social, ecological, and political change. So there you go. All right. This is um, this story has perhaps one of the funniest lines ever in it. I'll tell you the story, and then I'll read the line in the in the copy from the, the uh, Bismarck Tribune is where we have the story. There is a pantyhose bandit. It's happening in Milford, Mass., Dozens of pairs of handy pantyhose have been left near a school bus stop and, as I say, causing sheer annoyance ah. in the neighborhood. That's not the good line, though. Some are old. Some are new. Some have been there for two years. One resident says she has picked up 43 pairs in a single day. Police say they do not have the resources to deal with this because the only real crime would be littering. Yeah, how do they
5: know that the pantyhose were stolen?
1: Yeah, They don't. They just, they're just laying around. Here's my favorite from the... Uh, <laughs> This is so good. Uh, from the lo- a local resident, she said, The pantyhose dumping is, quote, weird. It's odd. It's scary for kids.
5: Yes. Pantyhose are scary.
1: Pantyhose
5: are scary. Not really. No, I'm not scared of them. I-, I-, I am when I wear them. That's true. Rarely. Yeah. Uncomfortable. I don't like them. That's a little TMI, Allison.
1: Uh, Trish McKinney, thanks for the ramble. Oh, yeah. Hi, Carl. All Hi, Carl. All the links <laughs> to these stories will be on our website, npr.org slash Five weeks and counting until the Republican National Convention in Minneapolis. At that grand old party will be some re- young Republicans, some of whom want to change the course of their chosen political party. A new book called Grand New Party How Republicans Can Win the Working Class and Save the American Dream well, it was written by a pair of 20 somethings, Ross Duthat and Ryan Salam. PPP swing host Mike Pesca spoke with Ryan Salam last week.
4: It seems to me that there is a pattern and the books that come out are uh, directly influenced by the last election so after 2004 John Kerry did not beat George Bush and we were made to answer what's the matter with Kansas and we were made to think about things like how Republicans had mastered micro targeting and it, and it just seemed if you looked at the publishing industry that Democrats were never going to make it then after the 2006 midterm we have had a few books like yours kind of positing or you know the uh, general thesis is that Republicans are really in for a tough time. Do you see it as uh, being dictated by the
6: election cycles at all? Absolutely not. Honestly, there are a lot of books like that. But the thing is that this idea occurred to me um, you know, before 2004 when I didn't want President Bush to win re-election uh, because I was so distressed by what was happening to the party. But it really hit me in the gut when I was watching President Bush's second inaugural address. Here's a guy who won re-election basically by winning over you know, married suburban moms uh, in Ohio who were struggling to get by. And then what is he talking about? He's talking about making the entire world democratic. Okay, fair enough. It's a good goal. We all care about that. And then about immigration reform, again, important issue, but not something that connects with those voters. And then talking about Social Security reform in a time when people really panicked about whether or not they're even going to have their pensions. Uh, They're panicked about, you know, their economic well-being. They have these really intense anxieties. They connected with Bush on a personal level. And this was the agenda he was giving them. So I thought, you know what, even if they look like they're on top of the world right now in 2004, they're going to come in for a very hard landing. And my friend Ross Douthat, my co-author, felt the same way. And we were like, you know, we've got to do something. We've got to say something now before. Or it gets too far.
4: And that question of mine was a little bit of a setup because I do have your article from 2005 in front of me which obviously predated the 2006 elections where you at where you call it the party of Sam's club isn't it time that Republicans did something for their voters. So when you were watching uh, the first uh, the second inaugural what President Bush did how he said I've earned some political capital and I'm going to spend it on social security privatization did you put your, he- your head in your hands and just say no 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 no, or did you say, Good, I want you to screw it up as best as you can because until we have a, calam- a calamity, we're not going to have a shakeout?
6: Mike, you basically asked me the toughest possible question you could ask, because you know I'm a little bit of an oddball in the sense that you know I always think the important thing is for your side to get things right. And that sometimes means that you're going to have to suffer some reversal, some losses. So I know that most of my fellow conservatives don't feel this way, but that certainly was my gut instinct. You know what? They're going to need to pay for this somehow. That's not to say that I wanted the Republicans to lose in 2006, but there was a part of me that felt, you know, they're finally going to get it. They're finally going to see how you can't keep changing the subject from healthcare, education, and jobs. You have to talk about where the country is. You have now, to meet those needs.
4: Now, the subtitle of your book tells me that your your talk about how Republicans can win the working class and save the American Dream. Your article talks about Sam's Club, which are you know you define as working class voters, voters with aspirations who want to live in nice houses and cul-de-sacs, but might not have college degrees. Now, some people say you know how a party will win is to talk to certain religious groups. Other people focus on geography. You know, whistling past Dixie, Democrats will win without the so- South. Why do you think it was so important? To to talk about the strength of the party that you
6: favor in terms of class. Why was it a class-driven argument at, at its base? Well, it's because you have one issue where Republican elites think the party is one thing and they think about one set of issues, but they don't see that when you're looking at when Republicans do well, they've done well by appealing to these non-college-educated voters. And, you know, these are voters who, some of whom are pretty affluent, some of whom are struggling, but what they all have in common is the sense that, you know, look, my kids are going to need more in the way of education. They're going to need more in the way of capital in order to make their way in the economy now because it's different from, you know, the age when you could get a solid factory job, you could get a solid, you know, professional gig, even with only a couple years of college or no college at all. Um, So a lot of, you know, Sam's Club voters are actually people who are successful entrepreneurs, say, but they don't feel that confidence that their kids are going to experience the same economy they experienced. It's going to be different. It's going to be a lot tougher. So education is really important to this picture. And I think that, you know, that's the backbone of the Republican Party's strength, yet they don't really focus on the actual needs of these folks, although they do address a lot of their cultural anxieties.
4: Now, you talk about there are some issues um, that motivate voters that you think the Republicans should own. They should be able to appeal to voters who are what some demographers call value voters. But I'd like you to get into that a little bit. But also, I think I detected—but tell me if I'm wrong— in your book, a little bit of picking and choosing, where you said, "Yes, it's fine to appeal to voters who are motivated by the gay rights issue," but at no point did you say, "And it's also OK to appeal to voters who are uncomfortable with Muslims, for instance."
6: You know, it's interesting you say that we actually don't talk about gay marriage at all in the book, and the reason we don't talk about it is that uh, my co-author and I don't see entirely eye to eye on the issue. I personally uh, think that same-sex marriage uh, should be legal. So this definitely places me outside the reservation among conservatives. I also really believe that it should be a federal issue, an issue that's handled by the states, handled in the context of local democracy. I don't think it should generally be handled by the courts. Uh, But, you know, we didn't agree on that. But we both agree that when you're looking at the anxiety about marriage, and gay marriage was a small piece of that, it's really not— about gays and lesbians, it really is about family breakdown and who's really experiencing family breakdown and who's not. And the truth is that it's working class people who are bearing the brunt of it. It's not the upper middle class who are still marrying at Ozzy and Harriet rates. It's still the 50s for people who are relatively affluent. You grew up in Brooklyn, right? Sure did, yeah. I I grew up
4: uh, nearby, and whenever I hear a politician saying breakdown of the family, I kind of close my ears because I think he's speaking code for a gay rights argument that I'm not... particularly receptive to, you know, being anti-gay or something like that. However, when you described it to me, I'm like, actually, there is substance to the phrase breakdown of the family. So rhetorically, do you think that maybe Republican politicians should be more careful of uh, how they, you know, talk about family values to make explicit that they're not just talking about
6: gay rights? I think that would do a lot of good if they did do that. I mean, I also think that the picture on these social issues is going to change because, you know, I'm 28 years old and the folks who are younger than me and around my age feel very differently about gay rights. Now, they actually tend to feel... uh, they tend to be pretty conservative on issues like abortion. Uh, but I think you're, you're dead on about that. And to me, actually, it relates to the whole welfare reform debate. Uh, because, you know, to me, the interesting thing is that you didn't have a situation pre-welfare reform where mothers were just lazing around and collecting checks. They were working. The problem is it was illegal for them to work and still get the benefits they needed for their families. So what the welfare reform did is help people, you know, stay honest and give them the tools they needed. Because the truth is that those mothers were struggling struggling uh, at the edge of poverty were heroes. And I think that they had a lot of conservative values and trying to keep their families together to the best of their ability, but the system was working against them. So the great, you know, conservative reform then, and conservatives have a lot to learn now from what they accomplished at that time, is, you know, make sure that these programs are working in tune with the moral values of the country and also with those communities that we're supposed to be helping.
4: What do you think of, what do you make of this current presidential election? Do you think John McCain is a guy who embodies your ideals enough? And maybe I'll ask you to play prognosticator too.
6: You know, um, I am a great admirer of John McCain, but there's a real fundamental problem with the guy and his politics. And it's that, you know, on one level, he's the perfect candidate. He's not your average Republican. He's someone who's broken with his party. He's someone who's heterodox. He's someone who's embraced creative solutions from time to time. But the issues that he seems to care about most on the domestic front are issues like campaign finance regulation, cap and trade, these issues that don't really connect at the gut level with working class voters, but then get him to talk about healthcare and education and jobs. He just doesn't seem to get it. He doesn't seem to understand where those needs are coming from So I think that, you know, he's a reformer, but he's the wrong kind of reformer for the Republican Party going forward. The reason I support him is because of foreign policy. Uh, I support him pretty enthusiastically. But I do not believe that he represents the future of the Republican Party. I think he represents a kind of weird, you know, thing that, you know, may or may not work in 2008. uh, But had he won in 2000, he could have remade the Republican Party in an amazing way. But that opportunity was lost.
4: Raihan Salam is one of the authors of Grand New Party, How Republicans Can Win the Working Class and Save the American Dream. He's also an associate editor at The Atlantic. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike.
0: From NPR and Chicago Public Radio, this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. I'm Colonel Castle, and here's your host at the Chase Auditorium in downtown Chicago, Peter Sagal. Thank you, Carl. Let me introduce you to our panel this week. First, say hello to writer and comedian Paul Provenza. Hey. Next, say hello to a deputy editor and a blogger for the Houston Chronicle, Miss Kiri O'Connor. Hey. And
7: lastly, well known telev-
1: television news chick and sometimes radio host Alison Stewart. Oh, okay. Hey, you know, that's right. You can't get rid of me that easily. Next week, I'm going to make my debut as a panelist on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Now, full disclosure, I was booked on the show months and months ago. And I thought, well, let me do the math. Baby Ike would be about three months old. And, I, you know, I really didn't want to leave him. So I said, let's take the whole family to Chicago. Bill's got family in Chi-Town. But now that it is upon me, I've already started wigging out about flying with the baby. It's gonna be Ike's first venture into the friendly skies and I wanna make sure they're as friendly as possible. So with just hours left in our show here, I'm gonna use it for my own devices and get some help. The author of The Rough Guide to Travel with Babies and Young Children, Fazia Rashid de Francisco, joins us. Good morning. Good morning, Alison. Thanks a lot for having me on your show. Sure. I know I should, as a journalist, go in chronological order in my questions, but I really want to address my biggest fear first. So what do I do when Ike starts screaming, goes to DEFCON
8: 7 while we're in the middle of the flight? Oh, well, you know, in the first instance, he's three months old, right? Yes. Well, I mean, he's more likely than not to sleep quite happily through the whole thing, and, you know, just do his usual in terms of uh, waking up for a feed. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the one thing that I'd suggest is, you know, to try and, and, and anticipate any discomfort he might have on the flight is just to start off the flight by trying to time that with, with a feed so that he's comforted by you and, and a good meal. And, and I understand
1: feeding helps
8: with um, air pressure. too. Yes, for, for releasing pressure in the ears. But you can also just give the ears a a little tug. So, I mean, if he were to start uh, screaming, really screaming, then, you know, you'd probably suspect that that he he was having pressure problems with his ears. And so, once again, just give him something to suck for a little bit Mm -hmm. and try just pulling uh, gently on his earlobes to to release the pressure. And, um, you know, if that fails, which it might, uh, just bear in mind that screaming is, is actually uh, a pretty good way for, for the pressure to be released in itself. <laughs> <laughs> That's the upside of
1: it. Well, let me ask you a couple of, of logistical questions. I know some people believe that you should buy a seat for the baby and put them in the car seat. Some people think that you can put them on the lap. Is there, are there rules from different airlines about this?
8: Well, you know, particularly in the States, it's very hard to to try and get um, clear guidelines other than looking at the website of airlines. But um, from what I can tell, um, you know, it's really left to the parent. Um, So in the first place, if you've got a three-month-old baby and you've got a very short flight, most parents wouldn't really, um, you know, A, book an extra seat or think too hard about carrying a, uh, a car seat with because you can have your child in a carry cart on the table in front of you that's you know that's for free it 's a free service and they 'd anticipate that that's what you would want and book you into the right seats and for For the short periods when when your baby might be awake and just wanting a little attention it's perfectly okay to have them on your lap with the the baby seat belt adjusted to yours
1: something else um, i'm curious about and and is trying, about trying to get size. through.
8: I'm curious about trying to get
1: through security because there are so many restrictions on bottles these days. And in terms of uh, going through the metal detector, am I allowed to carry the baby or do, should I stick with my husband and hand the baby off in between the metal detector? How does that work?
8: Well, I mean, usually security is, is one of the biggest sort of pains of travel um, by air. And, you know, you have to be prepared for, uh, just like you said, a couple of things. One is disruption. If, you're, if your baby's comfortably asleep in your. You know, kangaroo sling or in a cot, you're, you're very likely going to be told that you need to sort of get them out so that the you know contraptions that you're carrying them in can be x-rayed. Um, so you need to be prepared for someone else to help you out during that period. Um, but also with, with liquids, you know, there there are guidelines, but but they're usually the airline staff will be completely accommodating for for stuff that the baby needs and, and reasonable volumes to last them through the flight. So even though, um, you know, they'll tell you 100 mils only per item, um, they'll usually accept more. But it it helps to just try and keep that down to a minimum and to, you know, reconstitute things like formula feed Mm -hmm. on the flight and and be prepared to get water in the airport and pay for it. Um, Often it's very expensive as well Mm -hmm. as on the flight.
1: We only have about a few seconds left. Is there one thing I definitely should not do?
8: Well, don 't worry too much and don 't think too much about particularly what other people um, you know may be thinking. Parents tend to do a lot of double guessing, and they wear themselves out with anxieties (laughs) of, you know, whether other people think they're good parents or not. You know, have you Uh, been inside my head? I think
1: you, (laughs) (laughs) Fazia de Francisco, excuse me, Fazia Rashid de Francisco. Thank you so much for the encouragement and the good advice.
8: You're welcome. You're welcome. Enjoy the trip. I'm sure it'll be great. (laughs) Nothing to worry about. Bye. The
1: five stages of grief, BPP style, producer Ian Chilag weighs in with his candidate for best song in the world today to express the fourth stage of grief, depression. And among the most emailed stories on the web, how to send a message straight to a cell phone voicemail. This is the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. Welcome back to the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. We are on digital, FM, Sirius Satellite Radio, and online at npr.org slash Bryant Park. I'm Allison Stewart. Coming up, depression has hit the BPP. But first, let's get the latest news headlines from the BPP's Mark
2: Garrison. This is NPR News. Thanks, Allison. A powerful quake rocked Japan's north today. It injured more than 100. NPR's Anthony Kuhn has more from Beijing.
0: Eyewitnesses said that the Earth shook for about 40 seconds shortly after midnight. The damage from the 6.8 magnitude quake could have been much worse. It was centered on Aomori and Iwate prefectures on the northeast end of Honshu, Japan's main island. The areas are sparsely populated and the earthquake was 62 miles beneath the Earth's surface. The quake triggered some landslides, stranded people on overnight trains, cut off water supplies and shut down some expressways. Many of those injured were hurt in falls or cut by broken glass. Inspectors checked out several nuclear power plants in the region and found no problems. Meteorological experts have warned of possible
2: aftershocks. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reporting from Beijing. Dolly weakened from hurricane to tropical storm. It came ashore near Brownsville, Texas. It dumped plenty of rain and did some damage, but few injuries, and the levees have held. Minimum wage, it's reality for millions of American workers. Today, they're getting a raise. NPR's Cheryl Corley has more on the boost in the federal minimum. $6.55
5: per hour, or $262 a week. That's the new federal minimum wage, the second step of a three-phase increase. Although several states already have higher minimum wage pay levels in place, the national rate sets the base for many low-wage workers. Iris Pace lives in Indiana, where the state and federal minimum wage is equal. She says the increase just isn't enough for people trying to make ends meet.
1: You talk about rent, utilities, food, gas, it's not. Especially if you have to commute to any job. You know, you've used your 650 dollars already one way.
5: The new minimum wage means some workers will receive $13,624 a year in pay, still below the poverty rate for a family of four.
2: NPR's Cheryl Corley reporting. Comic-Con kicks off today in San Diego. It's the largest comic book convention in the country. More than 100,000 fans will don costumes and do comic book convention things. Comic-Con is now a mandatory stop for action movie makers looking to build Buzz. The movie based on the Watchmen graphic novel and a Terminator sequel are the ones to watch this year. That is your news with sides. More online at NPR.org. This is NPR.
1: All week long on the Bryant Park Project, we've been... Working through our grief of losing this show and losing our jobs. Uh, We've been doing this with you, the audience. We're being very transparent about this, but we're doing it BPP style by mashing up the five stages of grief with one of our regular features, the best song in the world today. We've arrived at depression. And here to join me, Ian Chalag, producer. Good morning. Good morning.
7: My sister Hallie is four years older than me, and when she went away to college, it was sad, right? She's my sister, but it was like no big deal. There was like no ceremony saying goodbye, and like I don't remember really being upset about it. Anyway, a couple weeks after she was gone away, my mom picks me up from school. I was in ninth grade, and my mom has this coupon for buy one, get one free Whoppers at Burger King. Sure. Sure. And I I remember I was pumped because I was going to get one Whopper and eat it, like, in the car on the way home. And then uh, the other Whopper I was going to put in the fridge, save it, and have it later. I just remember being, like, so psyched about this plan. And then I thought, oh, man, my sister, I know what's going to happen. My sister's going to get to this cheeseburger before I do and mess up my plan. I'm only going to eat one (laughs) of these two Whoppers. And then – it sitting in the car there it hit me that like she wasn't there to steal my whopper and i just lost it uh. i just like i was just sitting there in the passenger seat with this bag of these two cheeseburgers in my lap just bawling i was i just uh, i was just crushed um and th- this is like honestly kind of a problem i have i think like i don't really feel things until after they happen and you know, given what's happening with us, like I've been sad, but I know there is a whopper out there <laughs> <laughs> waiting, <laughs> waiting, looming yeah. in the
1: refrigerator of life.
7: Yeah.
3: You don't miss your water, you don't miss your water till you wail well run dry.
7: Ooh, so that's, that's Otis you Redding, water, You Don't Miss Your Water. It's not my best song, by the way. But I've just been thinking about, like, what is going to get to me? You know, like, where, what are these triggers going to be? And I was thinking, like, there's a trail in Central Park called the Ramble. And I'm worried, like, next time I run on that, I'm just, you know. I think a trigger for me, and it was, was something so dumb. It was going into Pret to get
1: a sandwich at 8 a.m., to buy lunch at 8 a.m. And there's a certain smell in that that fast Mm -hmm. food, sort of gourmet fast food place downstairs in the lobby of our building. And... And then I realized, wow, I'm not going to do this anymore.
7: I'm going to miss this boring sandwich I eat every day. <laughs>
1: <No>. <laughs> and it makes me kind of bummed out.
7: Pretty much anything that's awesome, anything where you, you heard it and you saw it and you thought, people have to know about this. And that takes us to my best song in the world today. This is a song by a guy named Lee Moses and... The first time I heard it, it it just blew my mind, it, uh, almost knocked me over, and and after that I thought I gotta play this on the show. So that's uh that's Lee Moses. That's called Bad Girl Part Two. There's a Bad Girl Part <laughs> One, which I also recommend. Um, and this is my best song in the world today for depression. You know it's. I didn't pick this to represent depression because it's a sad song or a depressing song. I picked it because it's it's wonderful, and I know that I'm going to come across wonderful things in the next few months, and they're going to feel horrible because you know I'm going to be reminded that the perfect place to put them isn't around anymore. You know that's that's the really depressing thing is like even good things feel bad. On our
1: fourth stage of grief, depression, from Ian Schrager.
7: Wait, wait, wait. Oh, stop it, stop it, stop it. All right, if this really is the last time we're going to do this, I want to do it right. Here we go. This is Lee Moses, Bad Girl, Part 2, my last best song in the world today.
3: Big brother, girl, a boy, love, a <laughs> love knows you treat me like a A wonderful woman, that's good to me. Ha. She very good, very bad, very good. But I love about to be another thing. And I say, dear God, I may be wrong, but said he was. It's a while be happy with that woman. Let me see.
1: Best song in the world today, expressing the fourth stage of grief, depression, that was courtesy of Mr. Ian Shalad. But maybe not, no need to be entirely depressed. Here with a little bit of therapy, a little bit of hope and therapy for us is Laura Conway, our web editor, with some interesting news.
3: Well,
9: I would like to give a big thanks and hug and shout out to Rob Patterson of Prince Edward Island. You might know him on Twitter as Rob Pat Rob. He has spent the morning building us a new
1: town. It's a new place where BPP people can hang out and talk to each other and post stuff and be together. It is bppdiner.ning.com. I'm going to blog about this later in a little post where I'll say where all we're going. Ning is very cool. That's Nancy Igloo, Nancy Garfield. BPP Diner is there.
9: Come <laughs> Are those the actual out.
10: official Army
1: no,
9: I didn't <laughs> I have time to look them up. I just found out about
10: oh, it. I was going to be so impressed. I
9: know, really. <laughs> you, guys you met them somewhere. Yeah, the town is really, really in its infancy. Some of the insulation is still showing through the boards, but it's there, and it is a place
1: where we can still find each other, and we'll move out from there. All right. That is good news. It's great news. That is good news. Tomorrow, we'll move on to the fifth stage of grief acceptance and as you can hear i am not alone the ppp production staff has invaded the studio well they come in they do the most so let's hit the music (laughs) not like you invaded yeah Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of resistance no it wasn't although there was something going on with you and ian in the corner about the chair interpretive dance it was odd and i decided to look away um (laughs) trisha mckinney our editor uh what is one of the most searched terms on google yeah, okay, so
5: this one jumped right out at me this morning. Um, it was number six. It's moved down to number eight. Who made the potato salad? That's you know, the, the, the phrase. That's who made the, the phrase. The, who made the potato salad? On Google. So, you know, I, I have no idea. Some of the related search terms were like Nancy Pelosi and George W. Bush. <laughs> but sometimes the related <laughs> search terms have nothing to do with the item in question. So I'm going to assume they're not related. And I'm going to go with... Uh, unless someone else out there can come up with a better answer, I'm going to go with the straight to DVD movie that was released in 2006 called Who Made the Potato Salad. It's about this kind of straight-laced guy uh, who goes home to meet his fiance's family at Thanksgiving. You know that old that old scenario. You know when the family turns out to be a little bit crazy. Mm. Crazy. That's right. So I have a little clip here. Let's hit it. Mm.
3: Potato salad. Now, yeah, now that's that's my favorite right here. Made a
1: potato salad, <laughs> <laughs> and the whole family is like, "Don't say anything about the potato salad." Why?
5: Huh? Why? N- huh?
1: You don't walk into a fast food restaurant and ask who's on fries, do you? You no, do roll up in the Roscoe's and ask who's drilling the waffles, huh? No, 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 you don't. So, why does it matter who made the damn potato salad?
5: I mean, really, who made the potato salad? <laughs> well,
1: who made you ask? the potato salad? the guy who asked ask that about out for, for two hours? <laughs>
5: <laughs> the guy who asked about the potato salad was Urkel Jaleel White. Oh, my god. Yeah, and I, I have to say, a movie, like, if this is the biggest scene in the movie, <laughs> then why do you name the movie Who Made the Potato Salad? It just doesn't seem like a good
1: title to me. That's just Oh, uh, It's a good scene, though. i got to watch this thing. It's very profane, by the way, my dad. <laughs> um, my most is most emailed at MSNBC, and how could it not be with this headline, Dump Your Lover Directly on Voicemail. There's a new phone service that means that you can uh, get through life's more awkward moments a little more easily by being passive aggressive and if the service allows you to dump your message directly into their voicemail to bypass the ringing. Um, Allison, we have a call for the show. <laughs> 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 it's
3: NPR <HDR. laughs>
1: yeah. Hey, you know what? If they'd known about it, it could have happened that way. Um, you can uh, they play a short advertisement. Um, unless users pay a subscription fee or fifteen cents. Subscri-
10: who's gonna
3: subscribe? Are you dumping yeah, that many do? people? That no, you wait, need to subscribe? but check out the name. <laughs> the,
1: the best of it. The best is the uh, the number. It's two six seven Sly Dial. <laughs> so you know, if you just want to to, you, we've all done it you, you you pray the person Doesn't pick up On the other end You're like Please go to voicemail Please go to voicemail Right You don't have to pray To a higher power anymore Just 267 Sly dial We'll dump that message Right in there I voicemail. would only pay
10: For that service If it if it just played a clip Of of the letter That Homer Simpson Dictated to Bart Simpson When he was trying To break up With his girlfriend And Homer said Bart should just write Dear baby Welcome to Dumpville <laughs> Population you." Ah <laughs> 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 uh,
9: Laura Silver. Hi. <laughs> Hi. I would slide dial back. That's all <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> Has anyone seen my keys? What? Yes. No, no. No. What? You um, lost me. This anyway. isn't really the time for this. <laughs> Who made the potato salad? <laughs> salad? I don't know. <laughs> it's a rhetorical question. But um, anyway, <laughs> my, my most is from. <laughs> Seattle Post-Intelligencer and it's about doctors saying that if you can't find stuff your memory may be too good and that's really reassuring to me because I'm always losing stuff one day I almost left my keys here and went home without them
1: can so never wait, why find would my, my memory in?
9: be too good if i can't remember where things because are because the idea is that you have too much in your brain oh. to focus on the minutia of you know where your pen the, is where the windows are on your
7: computer screen kind of where that like email is she broke up with me cuz i'm too handsome yeah, like I, a little yeah bit. this is just well, people with bad I, memories doing stuff you know
9: come on don't burst my bubble <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> no they say that if you're one of these people who can store giant Amounts of information, you might not, you just might not be able to deal with the day to day stuff. And a way to deal with it is to put stuff in referential places. Like your plane ticket should go um, in a place where you remember it, like near your back, because you'd be on your back if you didn't have your plane ticket, that sort of thing. Like some kind of mnemonic for where you put stuff. It sounds like. I could
7: leave my plane tickets in my plane. (laughs) Duh. Naturally. Okay, I guess sounds I like did. a
9: recipe for being a kook. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I feel better. Come on. Yeah, I,
7: I, I think this professor
10: probably uh, might, might have lost. I think he actually finished this report a few years it's, ago. Lost it. He lost it, and then he had to change it so that he could make himself feel better for having lost his report.
1: Well, Ian and Dan, you were being so gallant and polite to each other over mm-hmm. who should take the chair, mm-hmm. who, who would like to go next. Oh, Ian. after you.
7: Please. No, please. No, uh, clearly, it's I, fine.
10: I insist.
7: Yeah, I insist. Uh, then the, my most is uh, Dan. Dan Paschman does his most first. Okay, all right, fine. I'll, I'll cave. Most emailed
10: here from USA Today. Uh, the Army orders Lions draft pick Campbell to return to service. Caleb Campbell uh, was a seventh round draft pick. That's the final round of the Detroit Lions football team drafted him this past April. He had already been in minicamp. Now the Army has changed a policy. Um, they sent a letter to Lions president Matt Millen dated Wednesday. They said he has to give up pro football. Oh. And returned to full-time traditional military duties. Apparently, um, a subsequent DoD Department of Defense policy superseded the 2005 policy that would have allowed him, as a West Point graduate, to serve on the team, uh, to play on the team rather, and serve as a recruiter if he made the team. Uh, But that policy has been overturned, and uh, the Army tells the the Lions that Campbell was allowed to enter the draft in quote in good faith. Uh, mm-hmm. I- if he fulfills all his military obligations, he can return to playing football in May 2010, which is basically like an end of the guy's football career. Wow.
7: Say so. what you will. I mean, in, in terms of national security, I think it's good that the armed forces are more powerful than the National Football League. I yeah, I guess thing. that's
10: true. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> okay, uh, Ian, go. <laughs> I don't know if Lions fans. <laughs> mean, I to say. They've been a rough go of it lately,
7: but. Uh, yeah, uh, this is a most popular from News 4 Jacksonville. I
1: love News 4 Jacksonville.
7: Uh, it's a good News for Jacks. It's a it's a good station. <laughs> is that really what it's called? Yeah. Um, <laughs> this guy, w- this 18-year-old man, was arrested for third-degree grand theft and burglary of an occupied conveyance. He was stealing uh, city buses from the bus depot. Uh, thing was, he was... Driving them to all the stops Picking up passengers Dropping them off (laughs) And returning them At the end of the day Police uh, said he wasn't Raising any suspicion Because he was dressed Like a Miami-Dade Transit employee um, so they're trying to figure out why he was stealing the buses. You know, um, I,
10: I don't know how really. hard it is to get one of those jobs, <laughs> but I'm guessing there might have been a more legal route for him. Yeah. Wait, and I, ultimately he didn't keep
7: the buses. He no, he returned them at no. the end of the day. He so, was actually—it sounds like he was maybe the best bus driver everybody. they had. I was going to say that <laughs> might have raised their suspicions. This bus stopped everywhere it was well, supposed and to, and they didn't even time. have to pay he seemed him, to be right? Enjoying it. Him. No, yeah.
10: he liked it. He yeah. was working for free.
7: Yeah. Did I wouldn't he really press charges. He operated the bus as it was supposed to be operated. Did he pocket
10: the?
1: Money?
7: No, he did not steal money at all. Worst I, criminal ever. ever. <laughs>
1: uh, I understand why that one's the most. Ian, Laura, Dan, Trisha, thank you.
7: You're welcome. Thank you. You're welcome.
1: And you are welcome. That is the another hour of the Bryant Park Project from NPR News, our penultimate show tomorrow. That's it, everybody. We'll be back for one more day. It's a two-hour one. It's going to be a winner. Please be there. I'm Allison Stewart. This is the Bryant Park Project from NPR News.